History happened everywhere. The verdict. This is our After Show podcast where we look back at the most recent episode, number 74.5, adding insult to injury in Yorkshire during the 1500s. This was our Yorkshire Day special. So if you haven't listened to that, go back and check it out or else there will be spoilers ahead. So how do they spend their time while they're inside your trousers? Well, you can see them walking about. And I've always stressed that they have wide... Get out! Oh, yeah, little It was at this point that we had to abandon filming. One of the ferrets had sunk its teeth into a tender part of his anatomy and refused to let go. Mr. Muller gritted his own teeth, administered medication, and said yes, he'd had worse before. For in the fast-moving sport of ferret-legging, such injuries are commonplace. Hello, my name is Ryan Weir and I'm here in the HHE studio with the shepherd's purse to my Wensleydale creamery. It's Mr. Peter Goddard. A-oop. <laughs> yeah, that's right, Mardi Bum. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm being a bit of a doylem today. You are indeed. But we are not alone, Peter. We are also here with the bottom summer fields to my Barncliffe Bree. It's our special guest host. It's Mr. Jim Colson. Now then. <laughs> oh, that was good. He's better at your Yeah, he is, I. yeah. I'm, I'm <laughs> surrounded by it, though, pretty much every day. So, you know, I, I, I have a, a head start in these things. But gentlemen, we are not alone in the studio because we are joined, as ever, by the daring duelist of destiny. It's the judge himself. It's Mr. Paul Dursley. Uh, how do? (laughs) (laughs) Am I watching Kes? I don't know. Now, Jim, I've been out on Ilkley Moor this week without a hat. And now I've forgotten everything about the last episode, so would you mind reminding me what happened in, let's say, 60 seconds? Yeah, I could do that. But when would you like me to do that? Can you do it now? We travelled to the wonderful county of Yorkshire, accepted to be England's biggest county and self-proclaimed to be the most magnificent. We learnt about the dangers of not wearing a hat on Ilkley Moor, about how Yorkshire's a better Olympic nation than Australia, and debated why people put ferrets down their pants. Our trip through time took in the Wars of the Roses, where York and Lancaster kept killing each other until they didn't for a little bit, and then they did again. We talked about Richard III and found out how people who'd liked him at the time suddenly didn't when his rival became king, and how Shakespeare ruined his reputation. We heard about Bess of Hardwick shacking up with George Talbot and rolling around in all their cash until Queen Elizabeth dumped her high-maintenance cousin on them. And then how the British nobility are named after places nowhere near where they live. And that was adding insult to injury in Yorkshire in the 16th century. Last week's episode done, summarised nicely, nice one son, now we're over to a young Dursley who's gonna tell you what he thought of me, he'll take you apart without any care, he's the lovely Paul Dursley, the lovely Paul Dursley. Ah, yes, I remember now. A lovely trip to Yorkshire. Jim, I had a fantastic time. I thought we learned a great deal about insults, about injuries, about humped kings and queens that could barely fit out of a (laughs) doorframe. It was a fab episode, but what does it matter what I think? Absolutely nothing, because we are here for the opinion of just one man. 
Judge Dursley. So, Paul, before we convene the court and receive your final ruling, please give us your first impressions of our episode in Yorkshire. Well, my first impressions are that Mr. Coulson, like you two, is not very numerate. Ah. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. (laughs) (laughs) What's he got wrong? Can you please tell me the area of Yorkshire in square metres? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I realised I did square kilometres. And when I meant to say square miles, I said square metres. Obviously, I was doing that to fit in. You know how it is. You've got to try and fit in with the cool kids. And Pete and Ryan are so terrible. I had to kind of make it sound like I was too. That's my defence and that's what I'm sticking to. Okay, at least you've had square metres as opposed to metres squared. We've already had this. Oh, you can't tell you how many times I went through the script and made sure that I'd got that right. (laughs) (laughs) Am I so pathetic? (laughs) I'm absolutely in awe and also in fear of this meeting. That's how he likes them. Yeah, it is, yeah. (laughs) Really, the best way to fit in, you just got to come in and take down the hardest one in the prison yard. So that's what I'd suggest you do. Take on the judge. So you need me to have a go at him if you would if you wouldn't mind are you trying to drop my grade (laughs) what there's no history of sabotage on this show (laughs) absolutely shocking really is you did bring a shiv right Now, speaking of fitting in, Ryan, in the one-minute summary, there was mention of the ferret, was there not? I heard mention of a ferret in some pants. Oh. Exactly. We spoke about the fact that people put ferrets down their trousers in Yorkshire, but we weren't really sure why or what it was all about. So I had a little look into it, and I discovered that ferret's legging, as it is apparently known, or also known, just to give you an insight into the imagination of the Yorkshire mind, as put them down mm-hmm. and, you're going to like this one, ferret down trousers... <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't feel like marketing spent a lot of time on that to be honest with you but okay there is a theory that it originated at a time when they would use ferrets to to put down rabbit holes to chase rabbits out for hunting right and apparently there was a time when you weren't allowed to do hunting so poachers would have illicit ferrets and they would sneak them around by containing them within their trousers that's the <laughs> theoretical origin but it was competitive it was who can last longest with a ferret down their trousers but it started out in 1972 Apparently there was a resurgence in the 70s and it was particularly popular with miners, according to a couple of things I saw. But they had very little else to do. But yeah, in 1972, the ferret legging record was 40 seconds, right? But then they made great strides. In 1977, Edward Simpkins set a new world record of five hours and ten minutes. Wow. <laughs> Did he have to feed the ferret? Like, a well, word, that sounds like a euphemism. <laughs> I think they're, they're <laughs> just going to feed the ferret. All right, don't tell me anymore. Uh, I, I, I guess the ferret he was eating him, actually. Right. He only had one ferret. You're supposed to have two ferrets down your trousers, it seems. One for each leg. But, that makes sense. Yeah, OK. But then enter the legend of ferret legging, a retired miner named Reg Meller <laughs> <laughs> from Barnsley in 1981 at the annual Pennine Show at Holmforth, Yorkshire, broke the record. But then in 1986, he attempted to beat his own record, trying to cross the, and I quote, the magic six hour mark, the four minute mile of ferret legging. 
<laughs> but apparently he put a stage on and had a crowd of people. After five hours, everyone got bored and just wandered off. <laughs> he gave up. He didn't make it to the eight hours and he never crossed the six hour barrier. Oh, Reg. So uh, Reg Meller, legend of ferret legging, never made it past the four minute mile of ferret legging. I'm surprised that Yorkshire did so well at the 2012 Olympics, even without <laughs> ferret legging being part of it. Imagine if ferret legging, you know, men's ferret legging, women's ferret legging. Would have scooped the board, I think. And uh, apparently Reg Meller's trademark was he would wear white trousers so that you could see the blood. Oh, oh. come on. <laughs> what? Wow. The rules of ferret legging also specify that your ferret must have a full set of claws and sharp, sharp, not filed down teeth. So no cheating by fiddling with your ferret. Who's filing a ferret's teeth? What the hell? <laughs> well, ferret leggers, apparently. Bootleg ferret leggers. What's the difference then between the older days ferrets and the modern day ones that someone could put up with it only for 40 seconds versus five hours? Yes, when that's you... a totally different, you know, that's two orders of magnitude different. So yeah. something has changed, the rules or whatever. Exactly. I mean, ferrets today, they just not what they used to be, are they? <laughs> yeah. They haven't got the get up and go of the old time ferrets, have they? <laughs> lazy, <laughs> lazy ferrets. Some people have ferrets as pets. Yeah, apparently they're quite lovely, but... They're also vicious. Are they the ones that, if they bite you, they won't let go? Yeah, there's a famous clip of Richard Whiteley, the TV presenter from Yorkshire, famously was interviewing a ferret handler, and the ferret latched onto his finger and wouldn't let go. It's quite a famous <laughs> outtake. <laughs> All right, let's just do a quick survey. How long do you reckon you could last, ferret legging? Well, the way I read it, they have needle-sharp teeth and razor-sharp claws, so I'm going to say not putting it down my trousers. No ferret for me, thank you very much. Exactly. I, I, would, I would be the same. Infinite, because I wouldn't put it down there. Seriously, in a competition, you, just, you wouldn't even pop it down? Well, I wouldn't join the competition, so it's a moot point. Uh, what would you pop down your trousers, then, <laughs> if you're not going to put a ferret down? Hamster legging? Is that as... It's not as high stakes, is it? <laughs> it's like the, the lower leagues, isn't it? <laughs> Uh, a sea cucumber. <laughs> <laughs> Next time we see him, he's going to have a cucumber down his trousers. <laughs> Haven't we all no. done that? I thought he was pleased to see me. <laughs> no, a sea cucumber. It was an animal, wasn't it? Not a plant. I'd have a sloth down my trousers. I had a chinchilla. That'd be nice. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know sloths have very interesting lavatorial habits? I did not. Yes, they effectively have a lavatory where they all go to, and so they sort of slowly <laughs> lower themselves down a tree trunk and then do their business and then slowly pop out again, and then the next one comes along. For children, that must take a lot of learning if you're a child sloth, because my children only go to the toilet when they're absolutely desperate. And if they were sloths and they had to get all the way down the tree, I mean, that would be disastrous. <laughs> it really would be. It'd be very slippery, wouldn't it? Oh, it'd be awful. I've seen a sloth. Up close. <laughs> I was in a boat. Uh, was it swimming or was it captain? <laughs> no, it was it was coming down a pole. What was the pole doing there? <laughs> was he the captain? Uh, uh, he was he was there with his wife. <laughs> So 
Jim, you mentioned uh, Bradford bashing was a, a popular occupation, and you mentioned that the Yorkshire folk are known for thriftiness. And I have I came across a story that kind of combined both those things. So this is the Bradford humbug poisoning of 1858. Oh dear! Whoa! So in 1858, sugar was very very expensive, as you can imagine. So confectioners got in the habit of adding a little bit of extra this and that to the <laughs> recipe to try and push it a little bit further. Adulteration. A little bit of adulteration was going on. They would do use what they were called daff, which was plaster, basically. Oh. Gypsum. <laughs> so they would pop a bit of... Yeah, exactly. It was powdered gypsum they would add to the menu. Not delicious, but not the end of the world. So let's go to Bradford, 1858. And there was a man called William Hardacre, also known as Humbug Billy. And he needed more humbugs for his market store. So he sends a fellow off to get the daff for his next batch of sweeties. So he goes off to his supplier, which is a pharmacist in Shipley. Now, unfortunately, the druggist, the main guy, wasn't there, but he had an assistant, a young William Goddard. No way. Possibly a relation. We don't know. <laughs> but uh, William duly nips to the attic to fetch the not entirely vital ingredient of daff. But unfortunately, William Goddard brought out the wrong white powder. Instead of delicious plaster, yeah. he brings out 12 pounds of arsenic trioxide. Oh, <laughs> arsenic. <laughs> Why did they have that in the attic? That makes no it sense. It was a druggist, right? It's a, just a pharmacist in general, right? pounds of it. 12 pounds of it. So the ingredients go to the sweet maker to make humbugs. The sweet maker goes, oh, these look a bit odd, but yeah, no, never mind. For the next couple of days, the sweet maker ended up vomiting with pain in his hands and his arms, but he didn't realise it was the sweets still. <laughs> the sweets then go to Humbug Billy, who also notices they're looking a bit odd. He's a canny businessman. He's a Yorkshireman, though. He goes, they're not right. I want a discount. <laughs> <laughs> he gets a discount on his sweets. He sells five pounds of these sweets. It's about two point three kilos. Each individual sweet they discovered had enough arsenic to kill two adult humans. Twenty-one people died from eating these sweets, and two hundred or so more became really ill, including Humbug Billy himself, who had one of the sweets. They initially thought it was cholera, actually, and then they found that the problem was the sweets. Goddard, Humbug Billy, and uh, the guy who provided the sweets were all arrested. Nobody was sent to prison, but the event was instrumental in passing of the Pharmacy Act 1868, which held the pharmacist a bit more responsible for the items they dispatched. Yeah, and no, made labels clearer, hopefully. Skull and crossbones on the point. Yeah. Disney ones and something different on the others. You don't, wouldn't you? Wasn't poison put in pimply bottles so you could feel that it was poison in the dark? No, oh, you could feel it was poison after you've eaten your first one. <laughs> <laughs> it does not surprise me a Goddard was involved in that story. They're very disreputable characters. I was surprised that, Jim, you don't know the definition of riding. No. Is there a better definition than a bit more of a big county? <laughs> yes, because, um, well... A riding is from when the Danelaw was over England in the sort of sort of the a thousand years ago. The word was actually riding, thriding, thriding, and and riding is actually Norse for a third. Oh, so there are only ever there are always ever three ridings. That's why they had to get rid of the third riding, but they didn't because they they moved one of them. They could have had south riding, west riding, and north riding when they got rid of east riding to always keep that three going, but they didn't. They chose not to. Yeah, well, they did. They obviously didn't know the meaning. Although saying that Tipperary in Ireland used to be divided into two ridings, but they obviously didn't get the message. The other the other thing that the the that, that comes across is. Um, ridings are themselves divided into walkings. No, <laughs> joggings. Well, uh, uh, do you know what a wapentake is? 
I've no idea. Um, I tell you what, Wapentake is the name of a lot of bars and things in Yorkshire. There's a lot of people who've, who've taken that word and used it. But I've I've always just gone, oh, Wapentake, yeah. I don't really know what it is. Well, a Wapentake is, again, the Norse term for a hundred, which is used in other counties. So it's a subdivision of a county. But of course, really? uh, which riding was York in? It's not in a riding. It's. I think it's not in a riding. I think it's its own place, like Washington, D.C. In the same way that Kingston-upon-Hull is not technically in the East Riding, its own city-state. There were two things. There was called, It was York and Ainsty, A-I-N-S-T-Y, which are right in the centre of Yorkshire. And they were not riding, part of any riding. I'm learning a lot about Yorkshire, and yet I'm still a little bit confused. <laughs> but I, 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 I'm quite interested in sort of old counties of England and bemoan that they were got rid of because a lot of traditional Yorkshire is in Lancashire and quite a bit of traditional Lancashire is in Yorkshire. Oh, there's... Barnoldswick is a village that is, I think... If anything's going to reignite a war between the two counties, although, as we've mentioned, it does not strictly stuck into Lancashire and Yorkshire, but it's the village of Barnoldswick. People get very cross when you, you say it's in the county they do not think it, it should be in. <laughs> <laughs> but you, I guess there's no way of telling before you start the conversation. You just have to take your chances. Well, I live in a non-existent county. Where do you live? Middlesex. Why is that non-existent? It doesn't exist anymore. It was abolished in 1965. Huh. The situation was resolved a few years ago when the large cabinet minister who is not a children's TV character called Mr Pickles said, it doesn't matter, you can call it whatever you like. <laughs> right. That's the way to solve those problems. <laughs> he's from Yorkshire as well, isn't he, Eric Pickles? Is he dead? No, he's still alive. Oh, OK. I don't, I don't think he's got long. <laughs> Talking of 16 course meals. <laughs> <laughs> I, th I think we're on quite thin ice there. Well, it's a good job Eric Pickles isn't on thin ice. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mentioned in the episode that Edward IV died, possibly apoplexy brought on by excess oh yes but what i didn't mention was that his edward the fourth and also richard the third's brother george who'd opposed edward at one point tried to overthrow him he was arrested and edward put him up for execution and once again the story is because no one knows for sure stories he said how would you like to be killed and george went i'd like to be drowned in a vat of malmsey please which is a sweet wine which is his favorite so on the 18th of february 1470 78, that's what they did. They drowned him for treason in a big vat of wine. Wow. wow. That's amazing. I mean, it was fun from the beginning, but rapidly went downhill, I suspect. Uh, I, I, I would think a little worm in tequila is one thing, but a human in a bottle of Malmsey. <laughs> Are you supposed to swallow the human at the end? I don't know. Oh, who knows the etiquette? You'd have felt a bit dodgy about taking a glass of wine from anyone for a week or so after that incident. Yeah, you? just you want some wine? Where, where'd you get it from? Very, 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 very cheap. <laughs> Once again, they are a Yorkshire family. Family. You know, Richard of York is the dad, so, you know, he would be thrifty. <laughs> He'd be saying, come on. Bargain on this. <laughs> We're not going to waste the rest, are we? Come on. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so, yeah, in your introduction, you talked about uh, Richard III. Well, his dad, as we said, is Richard Plantagenet, one of the royal families between the House of York and the House of Lancaster. And one of the many battles of the War of Roses, which is the Battle of Wakefield in 1460. Now, at this point, 
time, Richard III was eight years old, and his dad, Richard Plantagenet, Duke of York, he faces off against Henry VI's wife, Margaret of Anjou. And it did not go Richard's way. He were, the, the battle started out completely bad from the start. He was outnumbered, but his um, army was ultimately crushed entirely, and he had his own head removed. But the insult to the injury was that Margaret of Anjou then ordered that Richard's head be preserved and then displayed on a spike over the western gate of the city, uh, known as Micklegate Bar, and made worse by the fact that she wanted a paper crown put on top of his head as a form of sort of mockery for over his wanting to become king. And his head stayed there for a year until his other son, Richard III's brother, Edward IV, retrieved it and buried it. And today there is a legend which says that Richard Plantagenet's headless ghost can be seen walking around Micklegate Bar, while others say that his head can be seen appearing to people in shop windows. <laughs> I'll be honest, I've seen a few people staggering around Micklegate Bar before, but that is not necessarily because they were headless. They're more like they, they were legless. Uh, why, why specifically shop windows? I don't know, but that just seems to be where people say they've seen him. Yeah, almost as if they've got a vested interest in having a story to uh, attract people in for some reason. Yeah, to their <laughs> shop, yeah. Oh, yeah. Bess of Hardwick. Ah, uh, yes. Her house had, didn't it have like the most windows of any house in the world? Yes. She was obsessed with windows. More window than building, I think was one quote. <laughs> Sounds great. I totally approve of this best interior and exterior design approach. Now, um, she was, as I said in the episode, she was one of the richest women in the country at the time. She was favoured at court with Elizabeth I as well. And she was famous for building all of these uh, massive buildings. And Ryan has been to one of Bess of Hardwick's estates. Have I? Yeah. What were you doing on the 12th of September, 2009? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't recall. Okay. Bess of Hardwick was born in a village or the larger area of a village called Alt Hucknall in North Derbyshire, um, which is where Hardwick Hall is. It still remains today. Um, there's the Hardwick Inn, which is a pub on the grounds. And um, it, that is the village in which I got married when Ryan was my best man. Oh, no way. <laughs> I'd like to just show off that I got my the date of my anniversary right first time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I will be playing this to my wife. <laughs> he edited it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so we spoke a little bit about the Jorvik Viking Centre. This is the museum in York in England that recreates the 10th century life of Vikings in the city. The Poozium. <laughs> the Poozium, that's right. Yes, yeah, so you get on a little roller coaster carry cart thing and it, it takes you through a recreation of 10th century York. Now, we said that one of the most famous things about the museum was its use of artificial smells to create like this immersive experience for visitors. And I looked into that. And apparently the idea of using smells in the museum was proposed by a chemist called Fred Dale. Now, he worked for the York Archaeological Trust, and he was inspired by the work of a French perfumer named Jean-Claude Elena, who had created a series of perfumes based on the smells of ancient Egypt, just like, a, like an art piece, basically. So Dale then 
then went off and started researching the, the smells of a Viking settlement. And he met with archaeologists who first uncovered uh, many of the what turned out to be 40,000 items that had been recovered from under the streets of York. And he learned that the reason why so many objects were found in such great condition there was because the soil had been waterlogged for centuries and that had prevented the organic matter from rotting away. Oxidising, yeah. Yeah, and that meant that the original Viking rubbish pits with all the human and animal excrement was as relatively fresh and smelly as it was back in the day. So yeah, he was inspired by that. So Dale then went and met historians. He even met a Viking reenactor. And then uh, once he had enough of that data, he then pulled together a team of chemists and they started to develop a series of artificial scents. Can I just ask, none of them had an assistant called Goddard, did they, who brought some tubs <laughs> in to go, use this to create the smell? Just, I've got the powder, guys. Yeah. I'm pretty sure this is the right one. They all look the same. <laughs> They're only school children. It doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> so Dale and apparently Goddard, uh, they created a series of concentrated liquids that the museum could then diffuse throughout it, the building using something similar to like a fog machine. And uh, the smells were a huge success. So much so that in 2018, they started to sell the smells in its gift shop. And so there was a limited edition set of 10 different smells. Oh, God, I fear something is going to be delivered to my house soon. (laughs) I looked into it, but it was limited edition, unfortunately. Um, Yeah, and they represented different aspects of Viking life. So of those 10, you could smell damp forest, which is a blend of pine needles, moss and earth. Sounds nice. Yeah, it does smell nice. You could have freshly planed wood, which was supposedly the smell of a Viking workshop. So you get sawdust, wood shavings, glue that sort of thing. Uh, then you've got leather, so you've got animal hides, tanning oils and smoke, rotting meat. It's a blend of decaying meat, garbage and flies. And then finally, cesspit, which is the smell of the Viking toilet, made up of a blend of human waste, urine and feces. And that's what we buy the tickets for. What did they market it as? Something like Merde Ibaracum. What does that mean? Shit of York. <laughs> I can imagine the, the end of the year December advert for the perfumes there, the range. <laughs> one of those abstract black and white. Ah, Jovic for men. Jovic for men. <laughs> so <laughs> Yeah, you just you just get an image of someone with their trousers around their <laughs> dabbing delicately at their neck. Uh, but the Jovic Museum isn't the only museum to use artificial smells. The National Museum of Singapore, they have an exhibit called The Scent of Singapore and they have (laughs) bet there's nothing nasty there and they have four signature scents um, and it's supposed to capture the different aspects of Singapore's history so there is the musky scent of ancient Singapore the spicy scent of colonial Singapore which reflects sort of the influence of Malay China and Indian influences and uh, then you've got the refreshing fruity scent of Singapore's early years of independence and the unpleasant smell of fear that represents Japanese occupation <laughs> How do oh they goodness. extract that? Don't, we don't oh. want to know. What does it smell of? Japanese occupation. Yeah. <laughs> but my favourite is the Museum of the American Revolution in Philadelphia. And they have an exhibit that just has one smell. And it's the smell of tea. And so this is the recreation of the Boston Tea Party where all the tea was pushed into Boston Harbour. And so you can smell the tea. You had me at tea. Yeah, I'm exactly. Yorkshire tea. <laughs> OK, 
Okay, well, Jim, we have come to the end of the line. It is time for you to step into the dock and prepare to face the people's judge. Judge Dursley, are you ready to give your verdict? Yes. He really milks it, doesn't he? (laughs) (laughs) Then will the defendant please rise? I am risen. Your Honour, as usual, may we start proceedings by first asking for your verdict on factual content. Well, given that I was expecting communism in Antarctica, the factual content was zero. I mean, that is a good point. There was very little Antarctic material. (laughs) So, given there was a tiny little, little shockette there when I heard the episode, I found that there were a lot of facts, apart from the area of Yorkshire and Square Miles, were very very interesting indeed. And I I think it was very interesting indeed, and I think the facts were good. Okay. Well then, may I ask for your grade for factual content? I think I will give... B minus. I mean, that's exceptional. I'm, I'm happy with that. CP and Ryan, it's easy when you try. Punch it, oh, Pete. Just, I just, I'm not, I'm just, I, yeah. can't, I don't, I'm not happy. I don't like it. I don't like it either. Who invited him? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Me, because I needed a cover for another week. <laughs> okay, uh, Your Honour, then, may I ask for your verdict on entertainment value? Well, I think this was a bit of a breath of fresh air. Dang it. I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. <laughs> Silence in court. Boo. <laughs> so, I would give a straight B. Straight B. It's getting better and better each grade. This is this is the happiest day of my life. <sighs> Apart from the 12th of September 2009, obviously. <laughs> oh, well, your children are irrelevant then, are they? They're birds. And the two dates on which they were born as well. But this, fourth best day of my life. Okay, Your Honour, then may we ask for your verdict on the mysterious, the deadly, the Dursley factor? Well, one of the things in in this is sort of whether the place is sort of mysterious and, you know, one one of those places you've always heard of or always want to visit. So this is going to score highly as well, then. I would give C+. That is fair. Pete, this is not right. It's an outrage. Well, there we are. It is now time for the final verdict. But before the judge passes his ruling, Jim Colson, you have an opportunity to enter a plea. If you choose to do so, please make that plea now. I don't think I should talk too much because those grades are really good and I'm really happy. Thank you, thank you, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Smart move. All right, well, based on that, Your Honour, the defendant stands before you. Have you reached a verdict? Yes, I have. In which case, I would ask most respectfully for your ruling. So after very little deliberation, I have decided that the final grade of... B minus. I'm speechless. Seems generous to me. Well, there you go. How about that? Any final thoughts, Jim? 
I'm delighted. It's It's been a, a real adventure. I don't think I want to do one again in another two weeks' time, possibly not another two years' time, because it's don't hard work. Don't be sure. Are you sure? Stop trying to replace us. <laughs> <laughs> it took over every waking moment of my life. It does yeah, that. It does do that. Yeah. <laughs> now imagine it's communism in Antarctica <laughs> during the Triassic. <laughs> I have already subscribed and cannot wait until that pops into my pod player of choice. Yeah. 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 That'll probably happen. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, there you go. That is the show for this week. If you'd like to get in touch about any of the things that we've talked about on this show, or just to say hello, you can reach out to us on social media through our website at hhepodcast.com or by email at Pete and Ryan at hhepodcast.com. Yes, absolutely. We'd love to hear from you. And you never know, you might end up featured on a future show. One way to definitely feature on a future episode is to rate and review the show on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Your recommendation there goes a really long way to helping bring the show to new listeners. Yes, reviews like, It is my favourite podcast of all time, from Chainsaw Rainbow Peace from the United States. Now, if you're on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter, also known as X, you can find us at HHE Podcast. And if you subscribe to those, you'll get an alert every time we post any extra trivia, pictures, news, anything we can think of. Oh, and you can follow me as well and find out more about what I'm up to and watch my videos and stuff at Bewildered Dad all over social media. Well worth a visit. Absolutely. And we're going to be back again soon with our next episode, episode 75, Communism in Antarctica during the Triassic. Yes, we'll see about that. (laughs) See what I can pull out of the bag to delay it another week. But in the meantime, a huge thank you to the judge himself. Thank you, Mr. Dursley. Good night. And one last thanks to Jim. Thank you, Jim. Thanks for letting me play with your podcast. Our absolute pleasure. And that's it. I guess all that's left to say now is... You've been listening to... One of the things that we did talk about during the episode was Yorkshire's desire for independence. Because in the 1940s, there was one area of Yorkshire that went one further and actually moved to another time zone entirely. So (laughs) this was during World War II. British summertime meant that the clocks needed to be put forward to extend daylight working hours, right? As we're familiar with now. But the residents of one place called Aysgarth in North Yorkshire, they decided that the mandated one hour of British summertime wasn't going to be enough for them. So they just unofficially implemented Aysgarth time, put the clock three hours ahead of GMT, (laughs) so all the farm workers could then make the most of daylight hours. And so for the summer of 1944, one part of North Yorkshire found found itself in the same time zone as Uganda, Azerbaijan <laughs> and the United Arab Emirates. It's easier for those farmers of the sheep in Aysgarth to go and do business with the UAE. So, you know, it makes sense. Right? <laughs> you know, there's, uh, there is another city in Yorkshire that um, possibly isn't part of Yorkshire. So it might have already 
declared independence. <laughs> okay, go on. Doncaster. The big story about that was that in 1136, King Stephen was king of England. He ceded Doncaster to King David of Scotland in the Treaty of Durham. And the story goes, they never actually officially gave it back. So I te- didn't know that. Technically, Doncaster, although a lot of historians now say, yeah, but it's not really the case. It is, it is Yorkshire. It is British. But in a way, Doncaster's Scottish. And I, you can tell they've got Scottish uh, restaurants there. There's this place, McDonald's, that I went to. <laughs> yeah. You never mentioned the Yorkshire flag. Oh, no, we didn't, did we? Yeah, it's quite Take a, a grade one. off. <laughs> Too late. <laughs> Too late. It's blue with the white rose.